You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a former sergeant major in the U.S. Army with multiple combat deployments and a long record of historic assignments. We'll get to her coming up in just a moment. But our usual reminders for you guys that we give you every week, we need to grow our social media presence. So please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast, and leave us Apple reviews. The uh, show continues to grow. Those Apple reviews help us immensely. doesn't have to be a long review. Just tell us why you like the show. Give us five stars, thumbs up, whatever it may be. Thumbs up on our YouTube channel as well. Go there, follow us on YouTube, subscribe to the channel, and give us a thumbs up on all the content there as well. All this engagement really helps grow the show guys so that's why i beat you guys up over every single week because uh we need to continue to grow this this hazard ground community as well don't forget about our promotion with amazon you go to our website hazardground.com you can click on the amazon button at the bottom of the home page or under the sponsors tab for any amazon shopping you have to do go to hazardground.com first and get rerouted to, to amazon and whatever you guys spend we get a percentage of and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on this show, it's an easy way for you guys to help out veterans charities without ever having to get off your couch or get off your smartphone. It's great on your smartphone as well. It redirects you right to the app so all of your credit card information is saved and everything. If you do that, it just makes it really user friendly. So, again, uh, hazardground.com before you go to uh, amazon.com. All right, uh, let's get to this week's guest. She spent over 28 years in uniform, retired as a sergeant major from the U.S. Army. She's got four deployments overseas, including to Iraq and Afghanistan. She was also a fellow for Senator Kristen Gillibrand out of the state of New York, and she was a legislative liaison to the Secretary of the Army. She is currently running for District 3, a county seat in her local county in Henry County, Georgia. She is Sarita Dyer joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Sarita, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, it is great. One, I always uh, love having females on the show. Our, our audience always asks for more females, so it's great uh, that you're willing to do this. and. Um, I, I kind of remind people like, Hey, we're at like a 12, 13%, you know, ratio of females. I'm like, that's kind of consistent with what the service is. So it's not like, we're not trying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, we're, we're short on numbers. That said, uh, I got connected with you, uh, through a mutual, you know, mutual uh, friend, I guess. But, uh, one of the things she does, she works with the library of Congress and the veterans history project. Uh, and this is actually something that's not really known about by a lot of people, but I think it's an amazing thing that the Library of Congress is doing is sort of much similar to what we do on the Hazard Ground here, catalog these personal stories of veterans and their time in service and what it means. So uh, you got a chance to sit down and do that as well, correct? Yes, I did. It was great. What did you like about it the most? Um, just like you said, being able to capture uh, history and uh, being a part of that so that you know, how do we make ourselves better is always having lessons learned and things that has happened before to make us better as a nation. So I would definitely excited and and would do it again. Okay. Well, let's start back at the beginning for you, Sarita. How and why did you get in the army? Um, My purpose of joining is pretty much the typical story. I joined uh, um, 
because I had life changes. You know, I had this plan of going to college and then um, my father passed, my stepfather passed. So I had to make some adjustments. And so true story, I saw the be all you can be really cool commercial and they jumping out the plane. And I was like, "Woo!" you know, I was already already athletic. So I was like, I want to do that. Unbeknownst to me, you know, you just don't join and jump out of the plane. But I went ahead to uh, um, to finish college. And that was initially my intent. But then when I got in there, I really liked it. <laughs> and I didn't get to jump out of the plane either. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you're upset about that whole endeavor. You didn't get to, and really you get pushed. It's not necessarily a jump. <laughs> I mean, if you stall, you're getting pushed. So yeah. there is that. Um, so when you signed up, did you know what you wanted to do in the Army? Actually, I wanted to go into something technical like engineering or mm-hmm. medical field. Um, I, uh, you know, they take that score and I got the uh, my great recruiter told me, hey, you know, I've always been great in math and science. And he says, hey, you know, you can be a mechanic and you can fix on these big vehicles and wheels and things. And uh, yeah, you can do this. And I saw the video and it was so convincing. And I said, yeah, I want to be a mechanic. Unbeknownst to me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I appreciate that recruiter, though, again. But, you know, um, I enjoyed it. And then, you know, later on, I reclassed to something that I felt that was more in line with my love of science, which was uh, chemical weapons of mass destruction and consequence management. So that was more in line with my love of science. Um, I was able to, during that time, uh, accomplish, you know, four college degrees, two masters, two bachelors, And I was able to still get into that science world with environmental management and environmental science. So it's ways you can maneuver and still get your dream through. Um, Have zero student debt, too. I was going to say that. Well, (laughs) listen, you don't qualify. Uh, There's that. So, you know, you're not you're not getting a free break. Um, Different conversation, obviously. But that's very nerdy. Um, I mean, Uh, like, well, typically people who, you know, look as look in the, in the science and the chemistry and everything world, there, there are specific opportunities out there for them. Um, you know, in the civilian sector, it's not, nobody really signs up in the military to be a chemical officer or a chemical or, or, or an NBC NCO. Like it's not, it's not something that people lust after. Um, they kind of get thrust into those jobs due to a variety of different reasons, mostly needs of the army, but uh, it, it's just sort of unique in that sense that you uh, wanted to be in that position. Yes, I love science. Still to this day, that's why I'm probably in line to run for office is love of my environment. So um, it was, you know, you start out at the bottom, you know, you start out as a young private and you, I looked and I used to see my NCOs who were such amazing. I look back, I had, during my tenure, there were some Vietnam NCOs still in the military. So um, you look at those NCOs and you look at what they're doing and you say, I want to be better or I want to do that. And so my drive to, you know, go up the ranks kept me going. And I said, well, I get here. I mean, I'm a nerd. So, you know, I was always planning. I was like, well, if I become a sergeant. I can do this. I remember the first day I became a sergeant. I walked around the PX the whole day so I can tell somebody at ease. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just I felt so proud putting those stripes on. So, um, yeah, it's just not so much a nerd. I just felt I found my footing. Right. And, and once you find your footing, it's not about the pay, you know, it's about just enjoyment. And there were some hazards, I mean, some some hard times along the way, but I felt like that was my footing and that was my calling. Now, you signed up during a, a peacetime environment. And so, you know, there, there's a different mentality about 
when you sign up. Uh, as you're going through this, did you realize you would think you would do this for almost 30 years or did you kind of just have an idea of uh, there was a means to an end for you? I kind of signed up peace and then we transitioned to war. Right. I came in and went straight. My first duty assignment was Second Armored Division Ford in Garlstadt, Germany, Hell on Wheels, General Patton's Army. Mm-hmm. And there were very few females. It was a heavy male armored uh, division um, and was probably two, three hundred females to the entire, you know, division up there. But I will tell you, um, I signed up and we went to Desert Storm. I remember going out in formation so clearly the commander calling us out. You know, you remember I'm a young private coming from Georgia, never been out of Georgia. I'm in Germany now. I'm not even acclimated. And then we stand out there and they tell us you're going to war. I mean, people were crying and hollering and screaming. And I could hear because we were on a small base. um, You can hear the infantry guys across just hollering, get some. And yeah, and (laughs) here are the women. We're mostly the support element, you know, and we're all like, oh, my God. I'm thinking I don't have any kids. I've not been married. I'm going to die. And (laughs) so then I locked in. I call home as if, you know, I'm planning my last funeral and my family's all hollering and crying. But I think. Something clicked in me after um, realizing that I, you know, I need to, I need to, I guess this is a term that's not to be used, but man up, you know, I guess woman up and just go ahead. You signed up, you committed. My mom always say, you start something, you finish it. So a minimum in my mind, I was going to finish this, this um, initial enlistment. And that was the drive, even though I was terrified, unknown in a whole nother country, but I just knew my mom always say, you you start something, you finish it. So that Georgia girl old values in me kept me going. Now, it's interesting because uh, you, you talk about being a private as you head into Desert Storm. There was a legitimate, at least at the time, we thought a legitimate chemical threat um, going into that whole operation, uh, much more so than the second time around uh, in, in the war on terror. But uh were you still in tune with the possibility of that chemical threat? Like, is that something that, you know, was in your mind that, that hey, I, this is what I've studied for kind of deal? Um, let me just tell you. <laughs> I was a private. We land in Daharan. Um, we saw, I, as I got older now, I realized that we're scouts. These guys come up on motorcycles. They say, get off. First of all, we rode in the back of the plane. We got off the plane. We downloaded duffel bags. I was just a poop burner. Do what you need to do. Keep it moving. <laughs> um, scrub laundry. You know, you just really, I wasn't that technical. And to be honest and not to, our country wasn't, you know, we were, we, it was a lot of unknowns. So the preparation was, here's your NAT kit. Here's your, you know, your ammo. Here's this. Here's your NBC suit. You know, your mop for your mask. Make sure. So it was more like that private mentality. Do what you're told. Yeah, and I wasn't one of the, the planners or the thinkers. So my life was in the hands of my NCOs and officers. When you look back on that experience, was it formative for you in any sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because it taught me that how important what attributes were important to be a good leader. Um, There were some bad, some good, but you look back at it. And like I said, it was a great lessons learned. And I reenlisted upon completion, you know, of that reenlistment. 
for all the fear that you had going in, did any of it actually materialize in your time there? Like, I mean, going into Desert Storm, obviously. Oh, yeah. There were many nights crying. <laughs> really? Yes, many nights. Um, you could. Was hear- it homesick? Was it loneliness? Was it fear or all of the above? All of them. Um, young. I don't want to be too. Um, well, I will just tell you, our, I, it's something that I think that we need to be more candid about in our service. And that's one reason why I served as Gillibrand's congressional fellow, because her approach with sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military. Um, the harassment was horrendous. Um, so between the, as a female, and I'm pretty sure a lot of female veterans can, um, you know, deal with this in the nineties. Um, we, I think the unknown, because I said we was in Daharan with infantry and tankers and field artillery and Marines and Brits, and it was a lot of people. And so we had a, uh, order that was given that the females had to travel in twos and threes. You know, we had outhouses and we scrubbed laundry on our scrub boards. So we had to travel in twos and threes where the guys got to roam freely. Um, the cat calls, the showers, you know, the makeshift showers. Um, we're standing there showering the guys assemble around with their tables and playing cards, hoping that our doors will fly open, you know, while we're showering. Um, the unknown of, you know, the scud, scud attack, all the, oh, by the way, the National Guard was by, and they always have these random drills in real combat. And so it was a lot of moving parts. So only thing, like I said, I had a first sergeant that was a Vietnam veteran, and he was instrumental. And I mean, he used to say some crazy stuff, come over the net. But I think his confidence and his way he handled it was one of the ways, um, and me journaling as well, um, that got me through that because it was a lot of unknowns. I felt very untrained. I didn't feel confident in my weapon. Um, Honestly, we only had six rounds. They gave all the ammo to the infantry because we weren't supposed to go outside. I'm dead serious. And a lot of people, I was in second Army division four. The 1st and the 41st Infantry with 267 armor, all those guys, they had tons of ammo. But because we were inside the wire at the time, um, we were given six rounds because you got to remember, we came out of Germany. So our ship hadn't really got in. So when the ship got in, we were given a little bit more ammo, but most of the ammo was given to the combat arms guys. And again, we was fighting the old way instead of the asymmetrical way that we've been fighting the last 20 years. So remember the front, you know, the combat guys up front and we're, you know, <laughs> the support element is behind. So support right. gets six rounds. <laughs> and that so is nuts. Front, yeah. I remember um, that so clearly. You, you bring it up. So I did before I did. And, and unfortunately, it becomes a question that I have to ask. We talked at the beginning of the show of, you know, having the females on. Unfortunately, it's a question I have to ask every female because it's the reality that you've lived. If you've been in the service more than you know, the last 10 years, uh, you've been sexually harassed or even assaulted at some point in your career. Um, with all that you had, you know, I, I guess for lack of a better word, you know, the naivete that you went in with and the reasons that you went in, and then you get thrust into this environment, you know, when, and, you know, if you're comfortable to share the details, please do, but w- whatever, you know, happened to you, it's like, did that deter you or sort of um, galvanize you to stay in longer? Like in that moment where you're sure like, did I make a wrong decision? This isn't what I signed up for. I certainly didn't sign up to be sexually harassed and catcalled all day long. 
Um, or is that one of those moments for you that was like crystallizing? It's like, screw these guys. I'm going to do this just to spite them. Both. <laughs> um, I, I'm again, uh, it was more like there were some, I saw that if I left, then who's going to take the, the baton. Right. So um, there were a lot of us who felt that way and we knew how to be a battle buddy to each other. And I think just us together as women, we were each other's strength to push through that. And then you started seeing small bits of policy changes. So that gave you hope. And then, as I said, you know, I, I'm a person who likes to plan. Um, I like math and science. So I started saying, well, when I become a sergeant, this is what I'm going to do for my females. And when I become an E6, this is what I'm going to do. So that galvanized me to want to stay and be part of the change. Okay, so you finish Desert Storm. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a sense of pride in all this at this point in time, or you just felt like you were lucky to get out alive kind of deal? You know the story, don't you? I know you're a true veteran. <laughs> it's it's kind of like I felt I accomplished something. I felt like I was scared and terrified. But then I, I got to really realize that, you know what? This training, you might not got the best, but – it could be better, but I felt like my first accomplishment outside, you know, parents helping you and, you know, your grandma giving you money and you know all those different things. I felt like Sarita did this. This is what Sarita did by herself, along with training and, you know, other battle buddies. But I felt like I did this, this girl from Augusta, Georgia, never been out of the state, all the way in Garlstadt, Germany, Desert Storm. <laughs> You know, and you made it. And so I felt proud. With that, and you re-enlist as well, you said, now now you're on to kind of like the next phase. Um, And you mentioned earlier about becoming an E5, becoming a sergeant, putting on the stripes. And, you know, was there a certain point where you felt like the army kind of grabbed a hold of you and it's like, okay, now I've, I know you mentioned when you get into the chemical world that you feel like you got your footing, but there's there's footing in your sort of military job and there's footing in the military in general. Are they on the same path? Are they happening at the same time? No, not really, because you remember I told you I had to figure out how to put school in, but then the military says, you know, I, I wanted to get the school done. So you have to fill out how to juggle that. And oh, I, by the way, in between that, I became, you know, I married and became a mom. So oh. now I'm a mom, I'm going to school, I'm juggling the military. I'm juggling being a female in the military. I'm juggling being a black female in the military. And um, and now I'm dual military and the mission is the mission. So there was a lot. Um, but I will tell you, my village was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is imperative. And I tell everybody, even outside of the military, if you are striving, male or female, a village is imperative to, to your success. You can't you do mean, it alone. <laughs> you mentioned that you dual military, dual military. Your husband also happens to be a retired sergeant major. Yes. Um, did things change for you um, from a standpoint of other males harassing you or bothering you once you had married another male in the military? Did any of that lighten up at all? Um, 
Uh, let me just back do, backtrack a little. Okay, so I married my daughter's father. I married a second. This is my second okay. marriage. Gotcha. So I'm blended. But my first husband was infantry. Uh-huh. Um, and my second husband was a uh, anchor scout. So I guess I like to come back. <laughs> but, um, and that's my husband's current husband. He did 30 as well. That's my first husband. My daughter's uh, husband did 20 infantry. Um, yeah, kind of, sort of, because... He's a little old school. Um, I We met, I was a young private. I started to go up the ranks um, to be candid. He was an infantry, uh, black infantry NCO, platoon sergeant. And there was some challenges in the ranks for him. Sure. Um, he was yeah. the first in the 41st infantry. I remember, you know, there were some things that he went through. So, I guess it kind of came home that he didn't want me. He became the protector instead of us being dual at the time. So it had some strains on our marriage and, you know, our marriage ended up ending, but that didn't end me being a mother. And then I realized now I have a child that I need to take care of. So um, I can say, I guess what he went through my first husband um, impact uh, why he wanted me to get out, but then I felt like I like the military. Why am I getting out? Mm-hmm. And maybe his story at the time, because I was, you know, um, we probably were in because we left Germany, Garstadt, and we went because we got married in Garstadt, uh, uh, Amsterdam, actually. <laughs> um, and we left there and went to Fort Leonard, where he went as a range, uh, range guy and I was um, uh instructor for the, in- the Seaburn School and um, he hated it there because he was a, a, you know, a Bradley guy and he felt like it was spiteful why he was sent there because he was doing great things when he was an infantry platoon sergeant. Um, his table 12s and things were amazing. But again, back then it was a lot of, you know, challenges and um, we got back and it was just, it got a little worse because as I progressed in the ranks, I felt like his issues, his his career kind of stumped a little, but I was progressing. And um, yeah, there were some challenges from people, but then they saw I was married. They left. But the minute when you be- I became single, it changed to there were no rank of approaches to me from general to young privates like oh sergeant you know and so it was a constant I guess would say to use in quotes game face you know like (laughs) I gotta be pissed off all the time to let you know hey this is sergeant Thomas right or sergeant Dyer get back you know and that that's how I had to pretty much be a chameleon at home I'm mom and then I come to work I had to be stern I want to get into that that dynamic um, later on because it, it certainly is part of your story uh, and every female story, kind of how they have to navigate a male dominated, male centric sort of job in society um, that the military is, and and, and not all of the the military is toxic masculinity to throw around mm-hmm. the uh, the catchword of of twenty twenty two and whatnot, um, but there is there is some of it. Um, but I think there's an interesting discussion and debate there that that I want to put a pause on and get back to because. Um, I want to get to more of, you know, your path and your journey to where you are, because obviously as you go up the ranks, that that perspective changes a little bit. Um, 
you you take part in the uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, uh, you know, aerial campaign. It's a peacekeeping mission. Um, but in a sense, after coming out of Desert Storm, heading there afterwards, uh, difference in mindset. Did that fear go away, even though you knew it wasn't necessarily a combat zone? Was that the reason there was no fear? How did you feel about that whole thing? Um, at the time, I had my daughter was very young, so mm-hmm. we had to leave her with the mother-in-law. She was two years old when I left her, um, mm-hmm. a little over three, going to three. Um, so that was more of me missing her. Right. Um, I felt a little more prepared because now, again, I'm back in Germany. I'm with 1st Armored Division, um, Freebird, Germany. Again, another male-predominant <laughs> area. Um, but I felt a better trained um I think I was, I took the training a little more different. I was more seasoned. I understood. I can say that um, 501st, 4th Battalion um, was really one of those units, and they had the quote 4th Battalion, which means they trained a lot. So we did a lot of Graffin Hornsfeld. Um, so I felt more trained, uh, better trained and better prepared. So I think the more I was missing was my daughter. You know, and my husband, he was deployed over there as well. So, you know, they would let you have your little R&R time. But it was more of missing my daughter. Um, and there were no Skype and FaceTime. And it was, you had to write actual letters. So with Miss um, uh, Susan uh, from the archives, I shared a lot of my letters from actual, I still have them for Bosnia. And I kept those letters because, you know, you have the free writing back and forth for my daughter so that um, she still have them so that she can go through and read them and see what, you know, the mindset was. But she was back in Virginia, and um, that was the main thing I missed. It was, um, were they carrying AK-47s? Uh, lots of mines. Um, you go ride down the road. You could see minefields left and right. Um, uh, it was dirty. Uh, we slept in a cigarette factory factory for 12 months. I rode a train into Hungary, drove 26-hour convoy across the Sava River. Can't swim, crossing the Sava with a flak vest on, terrified, thinking I'm gonna fall, <laughs> thinking my hungry gonna fall over in the water. But um, other than that, I felt better trained. And again, more seasoned. So uh, that's probably what makes a big difference about, you know, in the military as you evolve through the ranks the more mature and more prepared and tested and proven you become as a leader. All right. Uh, without fast forwarding too much, uh, by the time you leave Bosnia, you're at what rank? I'm 86. Okay. Staff Sergeant. All right. Uh, and you're completely now in the chemical environment the whole way, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and I say I all that. Chemical. Say again? I didn't do chemical in Bosnia because the threat was very right. minimal. So very I was a sure. convoy commander for uh, the class five, the class one, which is food, beans, bullets. Um, we would take it to all the different little control points that was dispersed that around for us because we were the support battalion. So we supported all the armored, you know, the combat arms and other elements. Right. Um do you get out of there in 04, 05 range, correct? Somewhere in that time in frame? In Bosnia? Yeah. No. Bosnia, you, we're, we're the first ones in. We okay. were out for the implementation force. So there was nothing set up. 
That's why I said we slept in a cigarette factory. Gotcha. So when do you fin- when do you finish there? I got there in ninety four to ninety six. That's what I meant. Ninety five, not ninety. What I, said, I mean, ninety five to ninety six. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Ninety five, ninety six. I don't yes, know why I, I said oh five oh six, but thank you. Well, it was still going on then. Around yeah, technically, yeah, technically it was in the two thousands. There was still like yeah. a thing going on there. We just didn't care. We had other pressing <laughs> issues at that point in time. Um, so when nine eleven rolls around, what position are you in? I was a drill sergeant at Fort Lenawood, Missouri. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I can imagine um, when it happens, you know, obviously you have been to Desert Storm, so you have a taste of, you know, what may happen next. What were you feeling and thinking on 9-11? Oh, wow. Um, we were getting ready to graduate a group of young rec- grown privates, um, and we were in the praxis training and uh, we were in the, in the auditorium preparing them to graduate. Um, we heard people running over telling us, hey, we're under attack. We're under attack. Uh, we immediately taught the privates to get down, take cover. I mean, we went into because you got to remember, I'm training them. Um, we didn't have really anything much to go off of it, but other than Desert Storm, we were still training Cold War type tactics. Um you know, uh, Russia, you know, that type of tactics. So we immediately told them because we said we were on the tag. We didn't know we, we were in a theater. We didn't have any other communications. So we just laid and took cover until other thing happened. Um, once we got that fast forward, we were told that the privates were not grad. They were, we would not have a ceremony but the privates will go ahead and ship out to their next duty station in civilian clothes because we didn't want to make them a target and we didn't know where. Right. So um, uh, we were getting them prepared for that. Then the order came down and said, no, we're having a graduation. This is a, you know, so we were happy. We got them fitted for their uniforms, their class A's, and we thought parents weren't going to come. We had to find out that there was a lot of my young privates who had family in New York that were killed um, yeah. We had to find out those. We had to deal with those young ones. And we thought we're still going to have the graduation. The general was like, we're going to go on. Um, we thought a lot of people weren't going to come. We look and we get ready to graduate. It was so many people in that auditorium that day. And we played, what's this song? We put a boot in your ass. I keep forgetting that song. <laughs> what's this song? Is <laughs> the American. We played that song. I mean, it was so energizing. And I will tell you, after that graduation, usually after graduation, we get like a, you know, a week off. We got three days off. We had so many recruits, so many people training. I ended up getting extended. Usually the tenure for a drill sergeant is two years. I was involuntary extended because we had, I trained mothers and daughters, sons and fathers. Um, We couldn't get them through the infantry or the combat engineers enough. So I did basic training, which was integrated, but we end up doing combat engineers. We did some of the infantry guys because we would ship them to their second phase because it was so many people joining. I will just tell you, it was, it was a lot. I did over the average drill starting to do about eight cycles. I ended up doing like 14, 15 cycles of training recruits. So it was a long, long time. And oh, by the way, I was still a uh, at this time, I'm divorced, so I'm a single mom. Um, and I will tell you, Miss Elsa Sneed, her husband was a drill sergeant as well, and he's retired sergeant major, sergeant major Sneed, a military police sergeant major. And I thank him and his wife all the time because she was an amazing part of my village, allowing me um, 
to be able to do that job and just stepping in like a second mom, even though we met through, she's my FCC provider, provider, you know, like my extended care for childcare. Yep. So yeah, as you can see, I have a lot. <laughs> it, it's a memory that I will never forget, but 911 was a moment that um, I was a drill sergeant training recruits. So is there a sense after that moment, um, do you speak to the recruits differently? Because oh, yeah. clearly, you know, uh, all those people who signed up didn't know 9-11 was going to happen. Um, the classes that were currently on ground were like, uh, yeah, this is a different change of developments that I wasn't prepared for. Did you see any sort of recruits wanting to back out, wanting to get out, wanting to leave? Um, initially, I would say no, they were really motivated, right? Okay. But then as the war was going on and on and on, you remember I did three years. So now we got casualty numbers coming back. So now right. we got, you know, the IED stuff going on. So doctrine was changing. Um, the stats on how we train was changing in between. So, you know, we changed uniforms three different times. We went from pistol belts to this uniform. I mean, so there were so many changes on how we fight. Then we realized it was asymmetrical. So now we got to change from how to train this way. So it was a challenge. Um, but we, I will tell you, um, my battle buddies, real stars and I, we stepped up to it. But the mindset, um, it fluctuated as we got longer into the wartime, I would say, as I got to the end of my career, you know, the casualty numbers start coming back. So we would talk to them in a different way and say, hey, I'm telling you this because, and I want you, and you could see the tension and how they train was a, a lot different. Okay, so um, how quickly do you get to your next assignment and your first deployment in the war on terror? Um, I made, I was a sergeant, I was E7 because I made E7 as a drill sergeant. Mm -hmm. I mean, E8 coming off as a drill sergeant. Um, I went over to the chemical school as a, uh, I was training them on doctrine because we were rewriting the chemical world doctrine. As you know, the chemical engineers and MPs share schools together. And so with that said, the engineers, um, because the IEDs and lessons learned were coming back. So we were imperative. In writing with that, joining hands with the um, engineers on how we, you know, the IED story. Um, probably about a year and a half into that, I came down on assignment, went back to Germany again to Kaiserslautern, where I was a first sergeant. And um, I was at the 29th support group in Kaiserslautern, K Town, everybody call it. Yep. I did not actually deploy because we were the 29th support group, which is huge. But what I did send out was um, individual augmentees. And so I had to make sure they were trained. And um, we also had a rigor, uh, airborne rigor unit that was inside of my uh, group as a headquarters uh, division group headquarters first sergeant. So I was more um, with that part. Um, but then I made Sergeant Major after leaving there and I went to Sergeant Major Academy. I came down for Fort, the awesome Marin Express from Fort Stewart. And from the minute I hit ground at Fort Stewart, fast forward, my daughter is getting ready to start college. I was on assignment to go to Iraq. Um, thank, thank you for the chain of command that was there. They allowed me to take her to college. I dropped off to college. 
and was on the next plane to Iraq. <laughs> wow. Camp Spiker. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so you're, you're now heading back into another combat zone. Yes. Um, you're much more senior than you were before. I'm always curious about the mindset and how it changes, um, you know, with more experience, with more deployments, with more time. So, and because your role is different, you're not at the bottom of the totem pole anymore. Clearly you have a different, you know, viewpoint of, of what's going to go on, but what did, uh, uh, what were you thinking heading into that first Iraq deployment? Well, I will tell you one thing about third infantry division. They are trainers. They are trainers. Um, If you adhere, I mean, you train and you train and you train. I felt, I look back and actually I did compare those two. Yes, there's fear because it's unknown. But I was able to realize that these young recruits, I am that first sergeant that I experienced in Desert Storm to these young recruits. And I'm that, so I realized I was in that role now of my first sergeant when I was in Desert Storm. I realized that these people are looking up to me to be able to be the calm, to be the voice, to be the one that bring them back. Um, so the training, I will tell you, 3rd Infantry Division got training down. Um, if you mm-hmm. well prepared, I mean, the, the the skill of training from the rollover drills and the simulated rollover drills to the the CPXs, the MPXs, the I mean, it's just unbelievable training. So I just realized I was that first sergeant that I that was my first sergeant in Desert Storm. So I realized I had fear. I had a daughter. I had a husband. Um, I just wanted to be the best that I could be for these recruits. I mean, these young uh, soldiers. And and not only that, my role was I was a division force protection, sorry, major. So not only was I um, advising the general on force protection majors and consequence management ma- uh, measures, um, I realized that. So I realized the importance of being a great battle buddy with my colonel, um, having great relationships with the other SAR majors, and just, you know, having that time knowing how to um, journal, having a solid spiritual foundation. Uh, I could tell you, I could say the Lord's Prayer right now and, and don't miss a beat. Um, it, it's just a lot of tools that I felt far more prepared but the one thing I could go back on is that I was that first sergeant for my that that was for me in Desert Storm. How does that deployment end for you? Like, what's your your takeaway from leaving it? I mean, did you lose anybody there? Did you guys sustain any casualties? Like, just kind of the experience of the whole thing. It was it was a challenging deployment. Um, from what sense? Because when you're at the division level. Um, you know every casualty. You know, yeah. um, we did the we did the Purple Heart ceremonies uh, because the man the cash was on the base. So we would all go over every time the Purple Heart ceremony is when um, a young a soldier comes back from outside the wire. Um, if they're injured, or we would make sure before they've uh, made it back out to Landstuhl, Germany. We actually, the general and all the sergeant majors at the division level, are, we would make sure they get pinned their Purple Heart. Um, it was as the force protection sergeant major, I would go out. 
uh, it was sometimes very challenging. Um, but you just, I guess I can't, because of my job, I kind of like am limited to like a lot of stuff I could say. Um, <laughs> but I will tell you, it was the NATO collective, how we train and how we interact was amazing. Um, as the force protection, you know, there were equipment and things that I would go out to wire me and my team. We would go out and ensure that everybody's doing all the right control measures and things that was in place. Um, as the chemical side, being a female, the senior enlisted and having to work with Iraqi, um, training them to learn how to handle chemical warfare was a challenge. Um, their work ethics are different. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting it nice, right? <laughs> it was delicate, but yeah, uh, you could also say, you could also say they were lazy. That's uh, I mean, you're literally you're looking, you're like, why are my troops doing more work for you than you are? Um, that would piss me off. But um, I realized we had to, you know, do the work um, because we would interchange with the Navy. Um, we were interact with the Navy EOD because chemical and EOD interacts together. Sure, yeah. The equivalent Sergeant Major was his name, their rank. I forgot their rank level. I'm sorry, but we would work together. Um, so Master was, Chief, I think, right? Master yeah, Chief. Master Chief. Yes. Okay. Um, we had a great relationship, but there was a lot of stuff I will tell you um, that I felt like we would never leave there because I felt like we were doing 99% of the work and they were doing pretty much nothing. And I felt like this is not going to happen. You know, chemical is a lot to learn and they were sleeping sometime. And it's like, it's a hundred and some degrees. My guys are, we're not really used to this where that this is your country and they're tired in Mach 4 and we're trying to train them. And yeah, um, I would. Then they've done that. Got the T-shirt. I get it. Yeah, the training, trying to train them to take over. It was like, well, because allegedly that was our way out of there, right? Like, oh, well, we can teach them to do it, then we don't need to be here. Yeah, that. Uh, and yeah. that kind of missed the mark. But that's either here or there. Yeah, it was. It was challenging. I mean, you uh, you go out the wire. Um, like I said, I was a senior consequence of person, and so the Iraqi equivalent. Uh, guy who's a male, he found out I was a female, and you know, that was a different because you gotta remember their culture. Um, so that was a little challenging for me to even interact with him because he saw me as a woman and not as the lead, um, subject matter expert enlisted, uh, that dealt with weapons on you know, mass destruction or consequence management. Um, so that was a challenge. So, you know, you got to have me, I got to have guardian angels, which we call them, you know, my security, if I'm interacting with him. So how comfortable you think I feel is, you know, I'm going out and I'm supposed to be training these guys. And, you know, I got to have all these bodyguards because you don't know what he, he's seeing me as a woman. He don't see me as the subject matter expert uh, or his equivalent, you know, U.S. Army, Af- Iraqi Army equivalent counterpart. Right. I was size as that. Um, by the time you finish this deployment, uh, you got to be closing, getting close to 20 years, right? Uh, close, yes. It was a 15-month deployment, too. We got oh, in- wow. Extended. Yeah, involuntarily extended. Yeah, well, you know, it, it happens to the best of us. Um, 
But yeah, I, I guess I'm wondering, was there any thought of, you know, hey, I'm, I've done three deployments, I've got kids, I've got everything else. Is any thoughts of hanging it up at that point in time? Actually, um, not really. My daughter was starting her second year of college. I'm in now. I, I just, this, yeah. I'm, I'm in. I love this. I love my country. Um, I felt trained. I felt confident. I felt like a proven leader. I said, hey, I might as well do 30. <laughs> that was the goal. Now I've done this 20 something. Hey, 30 is around the corner. So my daughter is conditioned. I have a great village. Um, uh, I felt um, the goal. I mean, I, I go all the way back to that. Hey, I started this. That's the goal to do 30 now. I'm going to do 30. So. Well, 30 includes a, a trip to Afghanistan, which happens when? <laughs> yeah, that happened quickly. Um, okay. no, so you, you get back from Iraq when? Like year and month? 2010. Okay. Uh, 2010, we get back. There's a post change of command, and uh, General Abrams comes on board. <laughs> I, heard, I heard of that guy. The General Abrams. The yeah, son that one. The Abrams. son of the guy who made the tank. Yeah, that guy. Yes, him. He comes on board and immediately, we used to call ourselves the division that makes generals, um, that makes four stars. Because immediately we get back in on nine, we, our connexes get back, our containers, we're downloading them and we get told, because remember I'm on division, we get told we're preparing to go back in Iraq because um, Iraq hadn't shut down then. So we start training up again. I'm like, oh, my God. But you're, you have this mindset now. So you already, the, the uh, tempo is high. You, you really hasn't, you really haven't incarnate, you know, and come back and decompressed. You're still vigilant. You still, you know, I remember 15 months coming back and you, so you're like, you're deploying again. You're like, okay, got it. You're, you're going through the motion. Um we told we're going back to Iraq because by now it's Operation New Dawn because it's mm-hmm. new Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom. So it's Operation New Dawn. We're going back. General Abrams is there. Um, we realized he needed this deployment for a division. We, you know, I'm at that level. I understand this type of stuff. Um, we're preparing and then Iraq, you know, shuts down. So we're like, whoo, thank God. Guess what? We go on Afghan. We get Afghanistan. So all we did was change uniforms, change labeling, and boom. But then we're on the plane to Afghanistan. So still in 2000, by 2011, you're headed to Afghanistan? No, no, 2010. 2010, we trained up, remember, uh, training. So we trained about six, seven months um, because remember, we were training initially to go back to Iraq and we got pulled off the Iraq because Iraq started shutting down. Or Yeah, I was there for the shutdown. <laughs> right, it started downsizing. That was 11, maybe, around that time. 2011, yeah. I got yeah. back late 2010, very late 2000. Right. You, 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 missed, you missed a good show. A whole bunch of 06s and 07s with their oh, claws no. in the rug trying to hang on to stay in Iraq longer. Uh, the only people in the world who wanted to stay there were contractors and, and high-level uh, senior officers. So, yeah. uh it was that was fun to watch. Uh, really, it was. So we started training up in uh, late 11, 12. And by 13, I was there. Okay. Late 12, 13. Yes. So but again, I mean, you know, this is a different environment in Afghanistan now. Uh, by the time it gets to, to 2013, what's your mission as you head in there? And what job do you specifically have? 
At the time, I was force protection again because a doctrine had changed and it had merged the engineers, MPs, and chemical together to call this protection cell. Got it. And so, um, which is fine. I think that's fine. It's a great way because we should have been that way. Um, so I was the force protection sergeant major again because I had already had that training and because I already knew. But the only thing is, is that different language, different terrain, uh, different fight. Right. A total different fight. So I get in and um, I'm told force protection sergeant major. So we're familiar with the equipment and what we were going to do. Just we knew that our going in and out the wire would be a challenge. But then we realized that um, we wanted to engage with the female population. And we realized that the special forces and the SEALs, they couldn't go into these villages that way. So what they did was we threw in a female engagement team and the chief of staff, because they knew I had all these deployments, they needed a, a person to lead this from the division level. I was appointed by the chief of staff to be the officer in charge of the female engagement team. I mean, yeah, the female engagement team. So I was doing force protection as well as the female engagement team. Um, and that compiled of going into uh, areas that our male counterparts couldn't and interact. So I had to go through training with that. Um, and yes, yeah, so I had a dual mission, but yeah. And uh, that was pretty interesting. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, at least look, that's a, uh, I've interviewed a couple of those, those females on the show who have mm-hmm. had that sort of civil engagement job, whatever the technical term is for it. But, you know, they work inside the special operations community tied to, to, to special ops units and mm-hmm. they go get information from females that they won't tell the males. And that's vital. Um, you right. know, it's, it's, it's critical to, you know, intelligence and, and analysis of, of targeting and, and all that. So it's a it's a highly, highly important mission that it took us you know, only about <laughs> 10 years, 10 years to figure out was necessary. But again, different conversation for a different day. We're a little bit hard headed sometimes in the military. We, we, we've got ways we do things that we don't like to change from. So. Uh, nonetheless. So I wanted to bring back that conversation that we talked about before now, because you, you, it's a good time given that you're in this role and now you're leading specifically other females only in a job that is driven for females. You know, you go through your career and you're constantly having to live up to a sort of imaginary standard that is set for by males around you. Um, not just the standard that the military has set, but there is a sort of unwritten, unspoken, well, you're still not as good as me because you're a female heir that may surround you at certain points in your career. Right. Is that fair to say? I agree. Um, When you meet those people and those folks, how do you combat that? Like, was there a specific technique you used or were you somebody who just generally ignored it? Did you try to find allies that were males that would help advocate for you? I mean, how do you sort of navigate through that, that, that area? Um, Did you, like say we're finding that a little bit different. I'm trying to. Sure. Um, as you are, are going through, you know, your career and you run into sort of these males who sort of would arbitrarily put roadblocks up in front of you, okay. in front of your progression or view you as lesser than them or choose other males who might not have been as qualified as you just because they don't want to work with a woman kind of deal. How did you personally navigate through that? Um. Actually, I, I had uh, mentors and actually it was male mentors. Right. Um, I honestly, I worked for one female uh, my entire career. Um, and she's a four-star general now. Um, 
she's in charge of special forces. Uh, and I will tell you, I found that you have to go to the source to figure out how it thinks. And so I felt like if I had male mentors tell me how males are thinking. And also at the same time, I'm trying to figure out at the same time to be who I am feminine at the same time, because I don't want to change who I am because I realize there are other females looking at who I am. Um, one of the big things I will tell you, any female who tell you that was under my leadership will say I was huge in maintaining my feminality maintaining who you are. If you, once we were in certain areas, you don't have to look like that. You can, can still, you know, I don't, I wasn't down for the long fingernails and all that. You know, you could be really nice and groomed, but I, I figure out how to, again, be that chameleon. I got to adjust accordingly. I could read you. And I mean, this may sound a little, uh, but I'm a woman of discernment, right? And I can read, uh, bad vibes or bad. I, I, my Iraq deployment, my Colonel told me I was the first, he had came from special ops and he said, you're the first female I ever worked with. That was our introduction. Sit down. So I'm like, Whoa. So I would phone a friend, one of my mentor, male mentors. Um, and they would say, well, okay, well, he told you that, well, then you got to figure this out. So it was actually like doing homework. It was a tough deployment because there were times he would talk to my subordinates and give them Things and they would come back because they didn't know what to do. So I would go to him and figure out how to approach that. But at the same, you just have to continue to realize it's a challenge. Were you annoyed by the extra effort you needed to put in? Say again? Were you annoyed by the extra effort? So like, again, you know, if they circumvent you and go to somebody below you and then they come back to you, now you've got to go back up to the top and have this sort of diplomatic, tactful conversation with somebody who outranks you when they are the one doing the wrong thing and you're trying to do the right thing, but yet you're the one who has to walk on eggshells to do so. Honestly, hell yeah, I was annoyed. <laughs> I was pissed off because right. I earned these stripes. I earned this rank. And because I, I'm a woman, you feel that I'm not competent or I don't know. Um, and it just, it was so hard because you got to think that was a 15 month deployment and it was annoying. It was challenging. And that's why I told you I deep dive into my spiritual foundation. How did it not get the better of you? Because that that anger can manifest itself in ways that are detrimental to you. Spiritual. I went to the chaplain. Mm-hmm. I prayed. I went to the church. Um, I jogged. I wrote about it. Um, it. It's just, I mean, it may sound, some people may say, oh, that sounds, but it really, spiritual, finding that spiritual being is imperative because I realized that he is not coming up the ranks. This was not the first person. It was shocking that I was at that level and experiencing it. And I will tell you, I was told sometimes, choose your battle as a sergeant major, choose your battle. You can't fight them all. And that's what I was told by a senior leader. And I was like, whoa. So I would go and do an inner, inner search. And I say, is whining? Or do you need to make him realize that He's, you need to be the one to show him that females can do just as well. So you're going to be the change in his mind. And that's what I had to do some inner searching and realize that maybe he never worked with one, but you're going to show him going forward. I'm going to give other females a chance because Sarita, you know, and she did her job and knew her job. All right, one more question in this realm. Um, and I've heard this before and I find it fascinating because I'm on the outside looking at 
you said you worked for one female in your entire career. Mm-hmm. Curious about that relationship. But there is an argument, uh, and I know it to be true, and I don't know if it's necessarily in your case, but in certain cases, females can be as detrimental if more, if not more than detrimental to other females' progress than males can, because there is a sense of, I got it harder than you did, and now I have to give it back to you. Instead of advocating, you're pushing back on other females, sort of because you had to go through a, a tougher path. That experience, that sort of you know groundwork I just laid out, can you speak to any of that? Um, that is true. Some of them do. But when I find that, because I have come across females who say, well, I had to get it this way and she don't need to do that. And I will pull them to the side. And I think that's what needs to happen. We need to have that conversation because I did come across some who would have that mindset. And I tell them that, you know, men and women are different when it comes to how we think things out. And I tell you reason why I say that when we were training in basic training, we would give them different scenarios on how, you know, we give them the team building exercises and we say, okay, you got to do this to figure out how to get over the wall. If you stand back and look, and I used to sometimes put all the females together versus like all the males, because I did integrated training. Right. And I will see how the females would take and do things, but they still get over that wall. I will see how males, they would be very barbaric. You know, they power and they pull, but then the females will find that in a the way they can be just as strong. So I would tell them, hey, look, we think differently. You need to give them a chance. Um, I was not a mother hen by any means. You can ask anybody. I, I still had some young man come up to me and uh, Sam's the other day here in Henry County. He goes, oh my God, you were my drill sergeant. I was like, oh my God. He goes, I remember those eyes. You had you were the devil. <laughs> <laughs> That's a compliment, I think. Right. But then I look and he said, well, thank you. I thank you for everything you've done. And so I look at you don't have to be a hard alpha Sierra Sierra to accomplish and make people successful. You have to navigate like every leader, each individual individually, their weaknesses and their strength. So if I came across those females and I knew they were doing something, I would let, you know, pull them to the side. I can't get them all. But the ones that I did come in path with, I would tell me, you don't have to do that. You can, you can, you know, I would tell you, I worry when I was off work, I put my hair down, put my nail polish on and I was completely Sarita. When I was at work, I was Sergeant Major Dyer. And that's just how it was. I was mom too. <laughs> right. Um, your leadership obviously is what propels you to your post sort of regular military assignments, including being a congressional fellow again for Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. Um, she, I'm from New York, so I, I should know all the senators names uh, that said, but I mean, you know, how do you transition from regular army Sergeant major into one of those roles? Do they approach you? Do you find out about it? Do you have to apply? Like, I don't even know how that, how that goes. Um, it's a great program. Um, I was in Afghanistan and um, I was on about the eighth month and someone approached me and told me, hey, you seen this program? I think you'd be great for it. For one, I had all the academics because, you know, I had, um, you know, two bachelors and a master. So at the time um, they felt because I didn't know where I was going to go upon because now I had been Fort Stewart now almost three years. And as a sergeant major, it was time to rotate because you got to remember I had at least 10 PCSs. So I knew as a Sergeant Major, you don't stay that long. 
And so I knew where was my next, because I'm a planner, where am I want to go next? So I knew I wanted to work at another higher echelon. I wanted to work at strategic level. Um, I was already had did the operational, I had did the training. So I wanted to be strategic. Um, where you go strategic Fort Bragg and all those different places. So someone gave me that. Um, and I applied. It was the Army Congressional Fellowship Program. I sent in a resume and you sent it into the Sergeant Major of the Army and you sent in why and your DD-214 and they select you. And I was selected. And so I was pulled out of Afghanistan, which we were only supposed to be there for nine months. So I did my eight months and I PCS out of Afghanistan um, my husband was still in Afghanistan. Um, he was with the cavalry. Um, he stayed back. I went back, packed up the house, PCS to uh, Washington, D.C. Okay. <laughs> I was selected and had to go to a rigorous uh, nine-month uh, master's program with George Washington University. Wow. I was a full-time student. Uh, really didn't change. Didn't have no changeover. Came back, PCS. So I really had that up tempo. I mean, like a lot. So I guess being able to have the school time. Um, again, I'm in a master's program, so I guess it kind of paid off. Helped me dealing with stress because I'm learning how to write these papers and things. And uh, then you go from there. Once you graduate the master's program, you have an option um, of what senator you wanted. And again, um, when I saw that Senator Jill's brand. Uh, fight to combat sexual harassment and sexual assault. And I just thought that I would be the perfect voice having uh, experienced some of that and coming through the ranks as a senior, you know, female. And I asked to be her fellow and they accepted. What sort of conversations did you have with her about the sexual assault, sexual harassment in the military? I mean, how in depth uh, are we talking? I mean, and, and to her credit, she has been at the forefront of that for, for many of the senators um, in reference to, you know, getting things changed. And, you know, currently now we have a new system where commanders are not the adjudicators of this entire process. It's handled independently and um, good. I think it's a good thing, but, you know, I also, in a sense, I'm, I'm angry because so many commanders failed at it along the way. Um, and as, as a current commander, I, I don't feel like I would have ever let down, anybody by choosing to do the wrong thing or the right thing or choosing to make light of those scenarios like some other commanders did. So um, I'm disappointed that we had to get to that, that, you know, place where we are now where it's done outside, but I certainly understand it and support it. Uh, all that aside, though, what kind of conversations did you two have? Um, okay. So it was great to learn how they say on the inside the DC bubble is how the sausage is made on Capitol Hill. Um, there is a staff. So there's just like the military, there's a chain of command. So she has was a, a legislative director who handles those type of things, which is a civilian who handles the Pentagon. And then she has someone who handles agriculture. So she has a, a robust staff. Um, so I worked directly for her um, legislative director who was in charge of the military aspects. Um, but what I will tell you, we had meetings and there were times that my voice my research, the things that I recommended that was heard. Um, she definitely, I would tell you, I would sit down and I had the opportunity. I remember I was, I signed a disclosure statement. So I was not Sergeant Major. I was Sarita Dyer. Um, I was a, I had a, a pen, I had a Russell's building staff, a badge. So I had a staff badge. 
Um, I did not go back to the Pentagon. I reported every day to the Russell building, to her office. I had a desk. I, I was a full staff member. Um, there was, I met with people, victims. I met with male victims. I met with West Point students. I met with Air Force Academy students. Um, we got to see, it, it was overwhelming of uh, the negligence of uh, the commanders um, if people only knew, um, if you sat across the table from the victim, it is a different um, having experienced it and then hearing some of those stories. It was almost like I was in a therapy session. Um, it was she had a lot of information on her plate that she had to do something. She it was, you know, opportunities were given. Uh, but she, you know, sit down with us. We meet, I don't know if they do it now, but every Wednesday was a staff meeting. You sit around, you talk about what's going on, what work you've done, where you're at. So she was very hands-on, um, but you, and she's running one of the, you know, New York. So, but there was times when I chose not to go in when she would be chewing generals. I'm talking high level generals, but um, I would choose not to go into those meetings. Why? I would want to be in those. <laughs> um, I just felt uncomfortable um, because um, I didn't want to be put in a situation that I would say, maybe they stretch in the truth. So sometimes I made that decision, you know, just to pull away. It, and sometimes like, oh, no. I mean, we're talking huge four-star generals. We're talking all all branches. Yeah. Your butt. And uh, well, I'd, lo- I'd love to be a fly on the wall for those, man. You, 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 you would have never got me to bow out of that. I'd be like, I'm in. Let's watch. Get my popcorn. I'm here. <laughs> I would sit and, um, and it was amazing sometimes when she was on the Senate Arms Committee. I mean, the, the, uh, the Arms Committee. Um, I would write some of the questions that she would ask the generals. Um, the one time they had all the star majors, I don't remember, you remember they testified before Congress. I wrote a vast majority of those questions that she asked the star majors. Um, I got to walk an amendment to the cloakroom. Uh, <laughs> so I got to see the making of the sausage. Um, that's, that's, I mean, pretty, that's amazing. It, it was amazing. So I will tell you, it was one of my most amazing experiences. It is a lot of work that goes on. It is not a lot of fluff. Um, I got to see behind the scenes of the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. I got to see that the staff work hours and hours and hours trying to get that stuff right to to finance. If people don't know what that is, to finance our national our defense, our budget. Yeah, that's our budget. It. that's it, the. Uh, that's the thing every October that they make us wait to get signed to make sure that we can actually get paid uh, and, and not be on furlough. But, uh, you know, that guilty happened when we were in Baghdad the second time. Everybody was like, hey, you might not get your paycheck in October. I'm like, fine, we're all leaving. They're like, but, no, you can't. I'm like, yeah, BS, we're leaving. So yeah, the F members are dedicated. I will tell you, they are dedicated, true patriots. You could say they're young, they're this, but they are some smart very, you know, the purpose of the legislative, the fellowship program, because they're most of the time the staff, these, they don't have a veteran, but I think there's a lot more now. And so she wanted a perspective. Um, they bring them on to be a li- liaison in between the Pentagon and the Hill. It's like 
if you say a certain word or jogging, they want to understand the process before they legislate. Right. And so that was more of I was the liaison in between if the Pentagon say we we're doing this with with sexual harassment. Um, and they'd be like, well, are they really or what kind of questions? And so I was the one who would I had a huge responsibility making sure I got that right before she legislate, you know, before she makes mm-hmm. the Well, that clearly led you to your job as a legislative liaison for the secretary of the army. So you go from non-green suit right back to green suit. Um, Pretty impressive to say the least. How do you stumble into this job? It was, um, it's called the uh, obligation. So you do the the fellowship program, which is a year. You go to school, you do the fellowship program, then it's a service obligation. So you are obligated. It's a smart move to go back (laughs) and you go back to the Pentagon. So now all you're just taking, you're not dispelling anything. You're just helping them to better uh, communicate with with the legislators. So it's kind of like a win-win situation. Um, I would go in sometimes. I don't know. You know, I should have provided you the poster of I'm one of the poster people that was not in my army, the sexual harassment campaign. I was one of the ones who did the poster in my sergeant major uniform. I would sometimes sit with the uh Secretary, the sexual harassment, uh, SES. I'm, I might be messing up the verbiage on her title, but she was an SES. And I would sometimes sit in on their approach on how they were going to best um, handle the sexual harassment and sexual assault in the military um, on just giving insight and how they can filter things to the, to the, to the line units, right? Right. Because the Pentagon, the strategic level, have to figure out how to get it down to the private. And so I would sometimes give a little advice on things like that. I got to ask you, because you, you go, it's quite a neutral drop, if you will, or a 180 from somebody who their entire career had to fight for validation as a female and, you know, work through, navigate to the sort of metaphorical minefields we talked about with other males uh, throughout your entire career. And then these last two jobs, you're sought out for your opinion as a female and looked at as the subject matter expert, so to speak, because of your personal experiences and military experiences and beyond. That seems like it's quite an opposite, you know, uh, you know, the script flips for you very quickly. Did you notice that that script flipped and did it feel any different for you? I felt it as an evolution. <laughs> I, That's I, a great way to look at it. That is a better way to look at it than what I said. Yeah, I just felt like it was an evolution. I felt like this young private, I felt like you went from, it's almost like you walked the walk and now you're here to make a difference and you can be that voice. You can be really a sounding board. You are truly, I felt like maybe you are a lesson learned. And I felt like I didn't, I tried to make it positive by taking the negative and how I can make it better. So I felt like if I'm going to transition, I want to give everything I learned so that those behind me can have a better opportunity. I mean, I just look at how we fought to get the females. And I know this is something to female childcare, six months, you know, I had my daughter, we had six weeks and I was back and I don't want to be graphic, but I was back in formation at six weeks. My daughter was six weeks old. And now we fought, and that was part of Jill Brand as well, to give women more time, as well as uh, another New York 
representative over in the house side, but I forgot her name, but we worked together and that was an evolution. And also to include the fathers because we understood how that was. And I felt that it was an evolution because what I did, I didn't have that mindset. Well, you need to get it like I got it. I felt like, how can I make it better? And so that was just my mindset. I guess that I don't feel I'm not a vindictive person. Maybe, maybe that makes a difference. No, yeah, I, I wasn't a question of like, hey, you know, now that I'm the one in charge, I get to dictate. I, I just, you know, for for me, it must have felt pretty is validating the right word, or just you know, like before, I had to struggle to have my voice heard. Now, my voice is not only heard but respected and sought out by others. You know, there is a sort of like you said, an evolution, but there's also like an ascent to the top of the mountain there. Um, that you don't often see, right? Right, right. So, so. Yeah, I, 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 I just hope you know. And then also, oh, I mean, I left off with the part about opening all the, all the uh, specialties to all you know females. I was part of that because that was part of Gillibrand as well. They were part of that because, you know, having looked at the lessons learned and how we fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. I was able to say, hey, we're out there. The front line is no longer what you all think it is. So I was to be able to be that walking person. And I just felt like it is, I mean, I don't know, it's evolving. It's it's almost like how our life is. It's an evolution. You get young, you start out as a baby, you get older and wiser. And and I think the military is is the exact same thing. I just think... It's just more one, you know, more men than women, but there's more men and women. Well, I don't know in the world it is, but only that 1% decide to serve. Less than 1% serves. So you make the best of it. Um, it, it like I said, um, I signed up. I knew what I signed up for and I wanted to accomplish what I started. How did you know that your career was over? Honestly and candidly, um, I was coming down. My time was ending on Capitol Hill um, and at the Pentagon. And I felt like, what well, was my next step? And being one of only 33 on active duty chemical sergeant majors, um, they wanted to send me back to Afghanistan um, because there's not many of us. And I just felt like my daughter was getting ready to graduate college. Um, I had only been, you know, seen one, she played college sport. I only seen, we communicated, you know, through Skype, through two deployments. I only seen one college game. Uh, I felt like I had missed her childhood. I wanted to be there for her womanhood. And I just made a decision. Um, it was just that time. And I no, just. Again, that's that's fair. Did you know what you wanted to do when you were getting out? What was next other than be a mom? No, I was terrified. <laughs> I had went from this person in charge. And, and I will say kudos to the Soldier for Life program. Um, it is an amazing program. Um, it definitely gave me that power downtime. Um, it does, you know, we we do when we come out in these senior ranks, we have these great expectations making this transition to the private sector. It's not the same, but um, it was a little terrifying. I thought I would get a job. I tried it. Um, it's a different thing. <laughs> uh, I tried a job. Um, it's a different mindset. Um but then I just said, well, take a knee. And I realized I did never had taken a knee. And that's when everything started coming down on me. That's when I 
realized that I had severe PTSD. You know, I realized that because I, you got to think from 09, I mean, just my career just went boom, 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 boom. There's never been, I've always been going, going, going. And I realized that. So um, I had to fix me first before I do anything else after that. And what did that entail? Um, Counseling, Mm -hmm. three years of PTSD counseling with an amazing body. Um, the VA has its shortfalls, but it has, if you know how to navigate it, it has its pluses. You got to know, you got to do your homework. You got to know what works for you. Well, if you wrote the manual on that, can you please share it with the rest of us? Because that would be quite helpful as I go through my own detail <laughs> it's, now. It's getting quite annoying and irritating at this point in time. But It's aggressive. It's aggressive. It's, it's knowing you got to do your research. And again, because I have that legislative background. I know how to navigate it legislatively, right? I know how to go through and look at the laws that's been written for us and know how to say, hey, and imply them. So that's the downfall. I mean, that's a plus for me, but not for everybody else. I would say the VA's messaging is, needs a little work, but there's a lot of tools yeah. there. <laughs> there's a lot of tools and I know how to navigate those tools because I have that experience. I know what the NDAA does. I know it is a mandated legislative directive to the VA on what you will and will not do. And so when I know how to navigate that, I know how to take that and go to the VA and say, Hey, (laughs) and um, so I will say um, I was able to, I will tell people just continue. If you can, if you don't get anything from here and if you're a veteran, Google the national defense authorization act. And there's a lot of policies in there that can help you navigate because you got to remember the VA is at DC. They got to get it all through all the states, through all these small places, and the messages gets lost. So uh, it's unfortunate, but there's millions and millions of us. So you got to just get that fight and just continue to fight. Found a great VSO, Veteran Service Organization. Um, there's a lot of them out there. And just continue. Unfortunately, it's a fight, but you got to fight. <laughs> until we get a better messaging. But the counseling was amazing. Um, I was able to say, hey, I had an amazing, as a woman, um, for most women, I would say, and there's no no male, no downing them, but if you can get a female uh, counselor, it, it works wonders. Um, it's a different conversation. It's not a pity patty, but it's just a more relatable conversation. Sure. Um, now you are currently running for local office in Henry County, Georgia. So what prompted that decision? Um, pretty much, uh, I was sitting, I caught in, got, you know, did a lot of volunteering activism, did some mentorship over at the local high school with ROTC programs. Um, just got locally involved. And then I, you know, coming from the military, you understand leadership for purpose, direction, motivation, and you paying taxes now. So you realize you're in the private sector. But I realized there was no leadership in my district. I realized that, you know, you pay your taxes, you ask questions, you got concerns, what's going on in your community, you got issues. And I don't want to make it too political, but I'm in Afghanistan helping them for their, make sure they can vote. I get home, I see all these attacks on vote. And so I just felt like, you know, I got to step from this side and step up and, and, step into the leadership role. And, and um, if I want to make a change, I got to be a part of it. You know, I, I think it's great that you decided 
to work at such a, a work at the county level. Um, there's a lot of veterans, and I think it's great because I think we need more um, in elected elected places. Um, but they go right for the House of Representatives or they go right for Congress and they shoot for the big one because that's kind of what we're taught to do. Right. I mean, it's, you know, hey, we, we, we the mission is, is all the way up here. It's not the bottom. But, you know, what we're learning through the political turmoil that we're in right now more and more is that the lower level is equally as important to your everyday sort of functional success as a citizen as the national stuff is in certain cases more important. Um, never have we ever seen more people show up to school board meetings, to county meetings, to, you know, local mayors, town halls, whatever it may be. Uh, they show up now more than ever before because people are realizing, well, this person has a lot more to do with my everyday life than somebody sitting in D.C. or in, in on Pennsylvania Avenue. And so from that standpoint, I think it's it's critical that you've chosen that route. And it seems apt with what you've done in your career uh, to stay in that mindset. Yes, I, I chose that route. You're right, because I realized it is the kitchen table conversations. I am a private citizen now. Um, and I realized that I thank the military because it, it it made me realize that what true leadership is, it makes you look at the definition. And I'm not trying to, all I'm trying to do is fix what's in Sarita's counties. Sarita, you know, Sarita table, right? The kitchen table things, the school board, the even though the school board are elected officials, but you know, you got the mayors, the 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 the, the commissioners, and they are far more important because they are the ones who control and govern your county. They are the ones who makes the decisions. I know there's legislators, those are the state reps, they legislate, they make the laws. But when it comes to how much you, what type of school, your your quality of life, these people make that difference. And it's a difference in legislating and to me in quality of life, um, because you got physical, even though they all work hand in hand, but it's how those things are implemented makes a difference. You, uh, throughout your entire career, have held a variety of different jobs. Um, you've gone through more school than any normal human being should care to to go through that doesn't have like, you know, doesn't operate on somebody uh, at any point in time or send rockets into space. Uh, beyond all that, uh, you know, you've been able to accomplish so much. You've had these jobs at, at both ends of the spectrum. Is there anything you feel like you missed out on in your military career? I think I'm where I'm supposed to be. I think I accomplished what I was to accomplish. I don't I don't have any regrets. Um, I, I I look at my daughter being a military. She's a true military brat. But I realized that what I did, I was worried about her and me being absent so long. Uh, she finished college, she had a great government job. And she comes home one day and say, Mom, I want to be a firefighter. Um, and she's a firefighter. Been one for five years get ready to graduate paramedic school. Um, and she tells me, uh, mom, you always used to tell me, show you my friends, I show you your future. And she says, um, I just want to make you proud. And so to me, I had, I was getting it wrong, but I realized, you know, I guess I got a little bit of it right. So there couldn't be any regret with, you know, my daughter being such an amazing, you know, Public servant. 
Well, it's, it's a great, it's impressive uh, to say the least. And also I'll add that uh, last year you were nominated for the Georgia military veteran hall of fame. Uh, do we have results on that? Um, I didn't get it last year from my understanding, but it's an automatic resubmission this year. And ah. yes, it's the resubmission. Um, uh, so I guess I will know they said something late September. So I will know. All right. We'll keep our fingers crossed and hoping you get in. I mean, everybody should be in a hall of fame. I, I, I have not yet been nominated for one, but I feel like sometime before I leave this earth, I'll be in the Hall of Fame for something. It might not be anything worthwhile, but that's a whole different conversation, to say the least. Um, look, it's it's amazing that uh, your story is one that I think resonates certainly with with females, but with everybody. You know, I mean, you've had such an interesting career across the board and have been able to provide uh, so many different perspectives to so many people. Uh, and, and the fact that you are a you know sexual assault survivor and, and deal with what you've dealt with, I think, is speaks volume in and of itself, but it's, you know, something that easily could have destroyed you. And it, it didn't, it, it catapulted you into greatness and, and onto other things. And I thank you so much for sharing that and, and being willing to uh, uh, continue to be an advocate for it uh, because it's, unfortunately we, we're, we're never going to eradicate it because certain people choose to be jerks. We'll just say to put it lightly, um, but the awareness should never stop and we should never stop. Uh, acknowledging the fact that it happens within our ranks and it, and it will destroy us if we don't uh, address it on a, on a routine basis. So from that standpoint, you know, somebody still puts on a uniform, I thank you for all that work because I think it's incredibly important um, and, and incredibly critical to uh, the future success of our service, which clearly, you know, our ranks now are changing nonstop, right? Like they, they're way faster now than they ever have before. And uh, we need, we need things to keep us up with the times and we need the right people to help lead us through that. And, and even though you're not in uniform anymore, you're still doing that. So uh, it, it has been incredible to get to hear your story. Well, thank you for this opportunity and thank you for what you're doing. No, and, and again, the Library of Congress uh, has uh, a, a uh, what's, I forgot the phrasing of it. Let me get it here in a second. But the Library of Congress is doing something very similar to uh, what we're doing here, the Library of Congress Veterans History Project. Um, you, you gave an interview there as well. I encourage everybody to go check it out uh, and hear that in case there was something they touched on that we didn't. But uh, again, thank you for your honesty, your candor, and, and certainly your openness in sharing your story. We certainly appreciate it. Sarita Dyer, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.